This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One quick message before I start the show. You can find all the links and resources for this episode by visiting the show notes on rickyrichards.com. If you enjoy this episode, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can help me to grow the show by leaving a review on iTunes. For anyone who does subscribe, review or share, thank you. I appreciate it. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to Ricky Richards Represents, the show where I talk tips for success with leading figures of creativity and innovation. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the show. My guest today is Dave Bonaguidi. Dave has worked in the advertising industry for over 30 years, in which time he's co-founded three agencies, St. Luke's, Karmarama, and most recently his new venture, Unlimited Inc. He's also worked at several great agencies, being a creative director at Channel 4, is that correct? Yeah, we, uh, I was creative director at Channel 4, but we, within that we set up for creative, so it was a... There we go. Uh, and continues to this day to be an artist. Mm. On top of this, Dave's also been a powerful voice and has spoken openly about all aspects of the industry from creative excellence, diversity, education, and most recently, copyright and originality. I've been looking forward to this conversation for many weeks. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I thought we could start off. You left CP&B. Yeah. Uh, what's the story there? And also let us know about your new place. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'd only worked at CPB for a couple of years, actually. started in, uh, it would have been July 15, um, following a kind of year of um, gardening leave that I had when I was when I left Kamarama. Um, and to be honest, I was actually thinking of setting up a, another business at the time and um, had had a conversation with Chuck Porter and the team that were running the London office. Chuck Porter is the P out of CPB. And uh, I, I kind of knew him... A little bit. He tried to buy Karmarama when it was quite small, when we were about five years old. And I'd always sort of stayed in contact with him and, and I have a huge amount of respect for him. And um, we had a kind of conversation and he said, what are the kind of things that you really want to do? And I'd, to be honest, I was at the stage where, you know, when you, when you constantly set up agencies and then leave them, there's, a, there's an issue, which is, for me, it was always that once an, an, an agency that, I've, that I'd set up had become established or had become an agency... It kind of, they, they sort of cease to, to function in the way that I'd like them to, which is to constantly challenge and develop into something constantly being interesting. 
And uh, I think CPB was certainly one of those agencies that um, has always been at the kind of forefront of anything interesting in marketing. You know, they had a healthy disrespect for traditional advertising. Um, they were very involved in their kind of heyday in that in that kind of 90s, early noughties period where they were kind of doing lots of stuff that was getting into the social field well, and experiential. Paddy Power, they did a lot of good well, stuff. Paddy, right. Yeah, Paddy Power was fantastic. I mean, I absolutely love that work from the London office. But the American offices were always very good at kind of, I don't know, they just... They just kind of had a real swagger and confidence about them, and they were kind of, you know, a great agency. And so the chance to work for them was something that I couldn't really refuse, and especially when they turned around and said, you can pretty much do all the things that you really want to do here. And uh, within, you know, a month of going there, I'd kind of, I actually had more freedom working for some there than I had in my own agency. I remember some of the things, we were just like, why don't we just try and do this? They were like, just do it, just do it. Um, And if it doesn't work, stop doing it and do something else. And if it does work, well, stop doing it and do something else. So it was a kind of, there was a big reinvention thing that I loved. Uh, the team were really good. Um, I think after about 18 months, it just, I, I think I'm just one of those people who've just got to work for myself. And I love working for them and um, I love working with them. And like I said, I, you know, I, I think the world of Chuck and uh, all the American guys and the, some really, really talented blokes out there. Um, and girls, obviously. Um, but it was just one of those things where I just thought perhaps I'd copped out when I left Karma uh, and had that year that I really should have gone for something and tried to do something different. And um, in a way, I kind of... It's like that bit in um, <laughs> in, Carlito's, <clears throat> in Carlito's way, you know, when he's... Just when I thought I was getting back out... Just when I thought I was getting back out, they, they dragged me back in. Um and so I just kind of thought I was just doing the same thing that I'd done for a long time. And, so um, did you go out in a ball of fire? <clears throat> no, no. Uh, hold on, I'm choking. <laughs> I'm choking on one of those <clears throat> lint chocolate balls. Um, it was one of those things. Uh, unfortunately, I'm one of those. I'm a. Once I get it in my head, that's it. Well, I, I wanted to because it seems like it's been a similar trajectory to myself in that I've hopped around from agency to agency and I get really bored really quickly and I'm just super discontent and I've got a hundred side projects on the go at any one time. Well, to be honest, and I think that's something you should be really proud of and that's something you should absolutely nurture. I think one of the one of the issues that I've got with the industry is it's really vanilla. We have become a factory of beige, uh, and we're quite happy to make beige and Muzak and everything that is banal and boring. And very few places sort of go, fuck it, let's try and challenge that and make it better. And I don't know whether I'm just an old punk at heart or... But I like people who kind of go, yeah, all right, everybody else is doing that. Why don't we try and do something different? And I think it creates a much more interesting uh, universe for staff and for clients because I think both of those groups of people need diverse offers, you know. All creatives don't want to work in the same sort of place. Everybody has a different vibe. And all clients deserve different types of you know, bespoke businesses that will treat them in, in the way that they deserve to be treated. Um, and in a way, that was the thing that frustrated me a little bit about CPB was it's a great ad, it's a great ad agency. And what I was doing, we, we had a job to do there, which was to, to sort out some of the issues of the London office. Um, um, and we sorted those out a little bit too quickly, actually. I thought it was going to be a little bit more of a project, like three or four years, but we sort of did it in about 18 months and and we're kind of making money again and trying to build the culture a little bit more and, you know, attract people and grow. 
And then I just thought, um, I'm going to end up repeating what I've done for a long time. So we we just jumped out of a... The, the analogy we use is we jumped out of a perfectly good aeroplane that was going to quite an interesting place. Right. Which seems suicidal. But for me, it was like, you know, if if, if you're anything to go by, you know, I get bored very, very easily. Um, if I feel like I'm doing a stick and repeat, I'll go. Yeah. Um, and I sort of need a little bit of fear and something or energy or something you, in my life been, to make me feel... You've been a huge advocate of that as well, haven't you? The, the, the idea of... If you're not satisfied, just jump ship. I mean, a lot of agencies kind of want you to be there for at least three, four years and, and to tick the boxes. And people kind of do that under the assumption that if they don't do that, that it's going to look bad on their career history. But yeah. it, it's not really been the case for myself. It's like you, you, you take from those experiences and you roll it onto your next. Well, I think that's a really, it's a really refreshing attitude, that, because uh, oddly enough, I don't know, where did you go to college? Uh, so I studied in Worcester, which was at the bottom of the Good Uni Guide. Okay and uh, for graphic design. And yeah. so it kind of gave me this right from the off. I was like, right, I'm going to have to hustle. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, that's kind of barrel rolled all the way through. Well, I think, you know, the fact, I mean, it's similar to me. I did graphics at college. You know, I didn't, they didn't have advertising courses back in, you know, 1902. Um, but it was, a lot of it is just like, I want to try it, and if I enjoy it, I'll carry on doing it. And the minute I don't enjoy it, I'll leave. And so, uh, you know, I did that when I, when I set up an agency called St. Luke's back in the day. And did that for a few years and then kind of got bored with that and then went, right, I've got a chance to go and work as a client at Channel 4. And then when, when I left Channel 4, it was to set up another business. And it's always like trying to, you know, I just want to basically fill my life with as many interesting things as possible. Um, and I think with with me, there was a big turning point when when I left Karma. Obviously, leaving your own business is, is can be quite a thing to get your head around. Because you know most people in advertising, you think you set up my business and I worked there for a while, sell it to Martin Sorrell, make some money, go and live in Norfolk or Lanzarote, depending on how good the deal is, <laughs> and then you kind of you know, and then you sort of go right, that's that's my life done, and now I can just get fat and and die, or have the Chinese hookers or whatever, or Chinese hookers or whatever, whatever <laughs> it is you like. Yeah, um, but for me, it was just like I, I sort of sat there and thought, God, you know. I was 50 when I left Carl Rahm and I thought, blimey, I've I've got fewer years ahead of me than I've got in front of me. And do I want to carry on working there? And I just thought, no. And then it became a really, really simple decision just to go, well, go and do something else. And it doesn't matter how much money you don't get or what. It doesn't matter because it's I, the most important thing is you've got your sanity. On top of your sanity, you talk <clears throat> quite a lot about the work being vanilla. Mm. and. I've been trying to formulate what my philosophy is on what constitutes good work recently and to some degree I've come up with this idea that we should stop trying to create stuff which is almost like someone interrupting in a conversation and actually be creating the stuff that people are actively going towards. So instead of doing the YouTube pre-roll, let's create the video that people are going to watch. Exactly. You gave a lovely example um, of Top Gun being a... Uh, a recruit, a yeah. feasible recruitment thing, and I love the idea that you know something as compelling and as loved as a film could be subtly a, ca- a campaign if done correctly. Um, what's your philosophy? Exactly that. I mean, it's. Um, I, I've just got to say, I, I, I just find the whole concept of marketing so sort of second division. It just sort of feels like it's the, it's necessity, and it's kind of you know it's it's very important. But I don't think it's the cutting edge of smart-minded, creative problem solvers working with business. It is now it's just become a, an absolutely colouring in by a numbers exercise. You kind of you're told what to say, you're told where it's going to go, you know how long it's going to be, you know how much money you haven't got to spend on it, 
And so you just end up packaged. Everything looks the fucking same. You know, everything looks the same. We, we've now also, even worse, we've slipped into a, an era where if somebody's done it before, that's good. Whereas I remember working for Steve Henry at Hal Henry. And you, you'd, show him, you'd have to show him 10 bits of work for everything, 10 campaigns, all properly thought through. Um, and they all had to be original. And he would show you'd show him the first one, and he'd go, no, 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 boys, halfway through it, you'd be reading it, and he'd go, no, no, stop. They did that in Japan in 1948. And he'd go, <laughs> Steve, you know, I was born in 64, how would I know that? He goes, it doesn't matter, you should know that. And there was a kind of, there was a level of, I don't know whether it's pride or kind of self-something, that you would just, you know, you sort of go, no, everything we do has to be original. Now, Hal Henry at the time, you know, had a lot of pride in the fact that it did do that. You know, it was constantly reinventing the wheel and trying new stuff. And to be honest, you know, they probably missed five times out of ten, but when they hit, it was amazing. And they did some sensational work, but it was, it's, it's that kind of thing of every opportunity. Steve used to do this thing where he'd turn around and you'd be doing a beer map. For, we did a beer map once for Molson. Client comes in and goes, yeah, I want to do print ads and all that posters stuff, but we want to do some beer mats. And I remember at the time, me and my partner went, fucking really? What, beer mats? And Steve went, no, no, no. Let's do the most talked about beer mat out there. And then when you think about it like that, if you can do a beer mat that gets people talking, what, what a brilliant ambition to go out there with rather than just, oh, let's just put a logo on it with the end line in, on the other side and that'll do. Because it will do. That'll work. That's what everybody else does. But Steve always had this sort of thing of, no, keep going keep going and i think that's the thing that's constantly driven me even though i don't work for steve anymore i still feel like i've got him in my fucking head going <laughs> but dave <coughs> dave <coughs> it could be this it could be that you could be you know and so i think that's you just, i suppose it's just like when you when you've been in the army for a long time you come out and you stand up straight and you do your bed in the morning and you polish your shoes it's just the way you've been groomed so steve's there in the back of your head in your subconscious yeah, and always you've uh, you know, you've started. You've got a new company now, but you've yeah. you've uh, successfully built two agencies before. Mm. Um, well, no, I don't know successfully. I mean, built them. I mean, they're still around. They're still around, which is uh, more, pla- more. They're not more, places I'd want to work. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair enough. But what I was curious to know is, just from an entrepreneurial perspective, so you're you, you've been very open about the fact that you stole a bunch of clients from one place to to start up. Was that St. Luke's or Karmarama? Um which one are you talking about? Because there was certainly when when we oh no when we did St Luke's yeah it was we were kind of effect, we were another agency we were Chai at Day and Chai we got we got sold overnight so we got a phone call on a Sunday evening saying you got to go into um, a hotel in Russell Square and you got to listen to this um, they're going to do a video link where they kind of had the agency over in New York and LA sort of saying we've got wonderful news we've we've done a deal with TBWA. And everyone was like, wow, that's that's quite cool. But we'd already been pre-warned by the management team, the rest of the management team in London going, it's bad. Because obviously TBWA were non-existent in the States at the time. They were very, very good in London at the time. They had Trevor Beattie and it was fucking rocking agency. And so you know, we were like 30 people, very small. And so we were going to be like, oh, okay, I know what's going to happen to us. We're all just going to get assimilated, spat out the other end. They'll take all the clients and they'll just crack on. And... Right at the end of the, uh, the this kind of video link, the somebody was like, and this is what it means in LA, this is what it means in New York, and then we heard this funny voice go, hey, and what does it mean for the guys in London? And then it just went, and the video link died, and we all went, oh, shit. And 
It was exactly that. We were all going to lose. We were all going to go. So we just did a deal where we just said, "Well, look, if we don't want to be part of this deal." David Abraham, who's who's now the chief exec at Channel Four, was part of the team. So there were six of us who were running it at the time. I was one of them, and we just said, "Well, we don't want to be part of this deal." And um, if we can take all of our clients and all of our people, spoke to the clients, and they said, "Well, if you can guarantee all the people working on my business on Friday night are there on Monday morning, we'll go with you." And literally, we just took it and it was like just moving house we just found cheaper rent what rent-free accommodation and we took all the clients so in that circumstance it's easy to see how you built that with karma armor i'm just i'd love to go through the process of how you go from deciding you're going to start a company and then turning it into because karma armor is a very well established agency now um i you know when you're when you're a small team i can imagine you getting your hands on a few 20 to 50k jobs but that it's, 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 it's not even that i mean when we started karma armor we you know i was working at channel four the bloke i was working i did it with narish was he'd he'd left st luke so we did st luke's together we'd worked at how henry together so we had history um he came in to one day at channel four and said why don't we do our own thing and i was like okay i'm a sucker for a fucking startup so i just went yeah okay what do we do? And so I started designing letterheads and <laughs> all the stuff that you do. And uh, we worked out in my kitchen when I lived in I lived in Spitalfields and we were in my kitchen for about two months and just got some computers and just started doing it. I'll tell you the thing that, that, that kind of helped us massively was Channel 4 were very, very supportive and said, if you're going to go off and set up your own thing, we'll we'll become your founding client. So that was like lovely. Uh, <laughs> founding useful, client of Channel useful. Four in your kitchen. Yeah, very useful. And then and then Mother um, Narish had worked at Mother for about six to eight months and been helping them out. And so Robert was Robert Robert Savile and the rest of the guys up there were very very generous towards us. And I think they they kind of. They were just very kind, and um, you know there were lots of situations where they would have clients just walking in off the you know off the street, going, "Can you do work for us?" And then they would go, "Well, we need more money from you, and you haven't got it, so why don't you try these guys?" They're kind of preferred partners, and so uh, you know we got gifted lots and lots of interesting little bits of business, things like Selfridges, and you know, and we wow. and we did some good projects for them, and then and then, but you know, I think the thing that always drives, you, I mean. Yeah, I'm a dirty immigrant spawn. <laughs> and so you always have that thing of, you know, save money, put money aside. So when we set up the business, we set it up with, I don't know, like four grand each. You know, we had no rent because it was in my kitchen. We just got a computer each and uh, a printer and that was it. Um, so who's your first hire? In fact, could you, take us, could you take us through, I don't know, how do you go from two people in a kitchen to a team of ten? Yeah, well, we had at Karma Armour, there were a young team called uh, Dan and John who had worked at Hal Henry. They'd also been, I think for some time, they'd been at St. Luke's for a little bit. So we kind of knew of them and they came in and they were like, you know, they, 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 were, they were on about 10 grand a year. So exactly <laughs> the same way that when Hal Henry started, there were five partners. They had a PA and a receptionist who happened to be the same person. And we were, we were higher number two and three um, because we were the cheapest people they knew I mean we were earning I was earning 10 grand a year at, at WCRS got fired um, and then uh, and then we went to Hal Henry did, did you get equity stake? no god no? no no we took a pay cut right they, paid, they, they, they said you have to come in on eight grand and we were like yeah whatever you know we're unemployed they never you know what in those days there was no there was never any mention of equity it was not the guys at Hal Henry never set up that business to sell it it happened. 
but they certainly never set it up. But in I the think early that's, days there's a, that's almost why there's a, a. I feel like there's a bit of a creative drain because mm. the tech industry offers that, and it and it has some such upsides that for a lot of people it doesn't seem sensible. Well, to... it, it does have upsides, but it doesn't have upsides if you're trying to build up an agency and an ad agency and sell yeah. it. I mean, you know, there's no margin anymore. I mean, oh no, I don't mean that. I just but, mean for the for the. I know that we've been saying for a long time now that the, the creative isn't good enough in our industry, and I wonder where that talent's going. Oh, it's, and yeah, you're right, and that's a good question. It's not going into advertising because I think if you've got a laptop now and an idea, why the fuck would you want to go into a business like advertising? I mean, it's like prehistoric compared to any other business. As an example, you know, we're unlimited. We're kind of working with a um, online bank, a mobile bank pretty modern you know guy who founded it is estonian estonia if you know anything about them, i mean it's like you know they gained independence from russia in 96 98 whatever it was they've been born into a modern era you know they are just digitized as a as a nation and they're the people who gave us you know skype all of these fucking really really cool brands that are changing the world the last conversation i had in an ad agency we spent well, I wasn't in the meeting, thank God, but they spent probably about an hour discussing the, the, the makeup of the people in the room. So we need a woman. We need a black guy or a brown guy. Uh, do, are, there, is any, are there any gay people that we can put in the meeting room so that we look really diverse? Because advertising, let's face it, is still predominantly white male, middle class, heterosexual. And even the women, most you know, I'd say this is going to kill me. But <laughs> one of the issues I also found was that a lot of the women in the business are as bad as some of the men. And so you create this thing that's just like, what, what, but what by bad? What? what well, are they you just they, as bad? They, they still they still celebrate the things that all that all that mercenary side of the business is very good at celebrating, which is power, control. You know, an individual who owns a group of uh, a large advertising group can. Give himself a what is it a fifty million pound summer bonus? I think it's just despicable. Call me old fashioned. I think it is. Um, but a lot of people, we a lot of people still aspire to think that that's something to well that, that's something to aspire to. I just I find it really really complicated and confusing. Maybe I'm just I'm you know my politics of are probably Buddhist communist. <laughs> with maybe a little bit of fascism thrown in because of the Italian that's, that's side. A, that's a new uh, religion you're but, forming. Yeah, <laughs> but it's but it's like uh, you know I, I, all all the sort of places that I've really enjoyed working in have had really strong. We look after ourselves culture. We don't do it. I mean, you know, that's what, you know, that's why St Luke's was named St Luke's because not after the five people who were six people who were who were the fa- who were the the managing partners, but it was also to avoid one or two people being uh, seduced by the concept of a sale so by making it equal ownership for everybody and we had you know rose the cleaner she had an equal share and it was reissued every year i don't know i don't know certainly not something they do anything model but it was a yeah and it was a really it was a very very you know the design companies can do it yeah Uh, but why why ad agencies were still named after the four men that set them up and they just it was just different this is and uh, i can see that money uh, you've said in the past don't be afraid of making money but yeah. um so obviously Kamarama sold uh, a couple of years ago i believe yeah. for an estimated 50 million i'm sure you know the actual figure yeah i don't think it was um, 50 million as a co-founder i wondered if if you became a millionaire off of the back of this uh, just out of interest because you you're you know you don't you don't seem to have changed your ways particularly if if you have 
And then also, I, I just, just want... do a lot more cocaine. Yeah, <laughs> but, hey. I've got I've got questions about this. You, <laughs> right. um, but there's another thing that I read online, and I didn't really understand it, and I thought maybe you could explain it to me, which was. Karmarama had a debt-funded private equity structure that meant it paid interest to its owners and made a pre-tax loss of $5.7 million. Hmm. Um, and I just don't understand what that means at all. Yeah, I don't really understand that. I mean, uh, the, what happened was in 2011, yeah. Karmarama was all self-funded when we started it. Like I said, it was me and one other bloke put four grand into it. We built it up to about 85 people. Uh, then... We had lots of people sniffing around us because there was a sort of period from about 2008 to about 2012 where we were kind of, I think somebody best described it as you're you're sitting at a table you have no right to be sitting at. And it was purely because of the culture that we had there, which was we just had a fucking laugh. We, we had a, we just had a laugh doing stuff. We tried stuff. We didn't have any fear about failing. We were just cocky, confident, stupid, which is a, a beautiful combination. <laughs> um no ad group would ever touch us because, you know, what they want, the ad people, you know, Sorrel to buy you, they want to see big, big numbers on, you know, profits and all that kind of stuff. And we were just, we were just... And yeah. they want a machine as and well. And they want a machine they? that's yeah. like not, that's very easy to order. Yeah. And we were wild, you know. I mean, it was like, um, it was like a, it was like a frat house more often, but it was like, it was a lovely place to work. Um, venture capital came and got, got involved. Some equi- the private equity people came in and went, we'd like to build a group around you. And we're like, okay, well, that sounds good. And I was a little bit like, well, it's not selling, which is nothing I ever wanted to do. I and mean, if, they, if they can put some money into us and then help us, you know, we were really dirty immigrant in the way that we grew, which was, you know, we'd had the same thing that every small business, any, any business under 10 years would have, would have experienced extraordinary highs and unbelievable lows. And as a result of those lows, what you do is you become very, very cautious. So you sort of go, right, well, we're not going to spend any money until we've had it in the bank for a year. And then when we find that right person, we'll get them and we won't just play. When these when these um, private equity guys came involved, they gave us, I suppose, a little bit of confidence, which was they backed us with some money. They said, right, we'll help you if you want to invest in tech, if you want to invest in program out whatever you want to invest in we'll help you because we'll help you grow but obviously with private equity their ambition is yeah we're going to put some money in <laughs> you're having to baby in three years treat. time three years time we want to flop it and we want to make quite a lot more out of it yeah but you know i, I to be honest i've never even thought about selling yeah when they came along and said that you can't I suppose you you not fall for it they were really nice people they seemed very civilized they had they had kind of ambition they seemed to see something in us which was i suppose quite nice um and they paid us some money up front and then said right in four years time we'll 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 sell it and then you'll make some more money it's quite interesting because it doesn't strike me as a particular (coughs) particularly good proposition for a venture capitalist to because agencies tend to be so uh what's the word basically they can go up and down can't they you lose a big client yeah i mean it's there's that wonderful quote but i think it was bogle Bogle said you know you're only ever everyone is three phone calls away from annihilation and you know in the early days of karma armor i'd I'd had those three phone calls three or four times you know there were there were moments when it was like man it's over and then suddenly something would happen and you'd find a 50 pound note on the floor and it'd be like (laughs) shit turning around to your frat house like how am i gonna pay these people yeah and it was but it was like that you know anybody who's done a a business will know that it's like that when they came along it was 
uh, I suppose it was quite flattering as well. And it, and and the idea of being able to play on a slightly bigger playing field and be invited to a party that we really weren't invited to, especially with the attitude that we had and the and the kind of personality that we had, because we were completely different to anybody else out there. Um, but I think it just it became very very corporate. We suddenly found ourselves acquiring a much bigger company than ours, and you know we were the we were the holders of all the culture. And these guys came in, and they, and they weren't really the same sort so of thing. And w- when you say you acquire another company as the co-founder, don't you have a decision in that? Well, yeah, but I was a, I was a joint. I was, you know, a, right. uh, even though I was a co-founder, I wasn't a major shareholder. One, one of the biggest mistakes I ever made, the biggest I ever made, gave I, up a, well, gave away all the equity. So, you know, there was a stage when Narish left in two thousand and five, and I suddenly had you know ninety percent of a company that was worth nothing. And there was one other guy. So I just said, well, look, let's start it again. We'll go 50-50. That was a big mistake. I should never have done that. And then when somebody else came in quite senior, we went, right, let's go 33s. And then somebody else came in and we went 25. So I just diluted all of the equity that I had. But I had equity, I had a lot of equity of a company that was worth shit all. So it kind of made sense at the time. Looking back on it, what it did was it put me in a weaker position because my ambition was never to sell. Um, Whereas... The other, the other three, their, their ambition might have been to sell. Well, so it was like you're always going to get outvoted. And I suppose that's why you're not worried about the equity split at that moment in time if you don't intend on selling. Yeah, yeah, because equity doesn't mean anything. I mean, it's like until you until you have a moment and the, the ambition was never to have a moment. I, I was just thought we, we can just keep growing this thing and make it more fun. And if they set up an office, they want to do an office in Australia or the States or China. Great. And... You know, at some stage I'll be too old, and they'll tell me to piss off, and then we'll, you know, I'll be all right. But it was it, it. There's a certain attitude shift that happens when um, you one when you start taking yourself a bit too seriously. Something dre- dreadful happens. The Japanese call it victory disease. Um, and apparently, there was a story that when they when they did Pearl when Pearl Harbor happened, all the all the Japanese were on the the aircraft carriers, kind of cheering and laughing and drinking champagne or sake. And uh, the emperor went, fuck, we've got victory disease, which basically is just, it's a beautiful, beautiful comment to sort of say in your moment of greatest victory, you're fucked because attitudinally you just, you think you've achieved everything. And um, I think we just, I don't know, for me, it just became a bit too corporate and I'm just not corporate. You got victory disease. <laughs> well, I, you know what? I don't think I ever did. I mean, I, I just, I just suddenly looked about and I saw lots of people, kind of, um, who were there for a reason rather than just because they wanted to be there. It, there was a specific reason they wanted to be there, which was it would look good on the LinkedIn profile. They could make some money at the end of it. Well, you know, I've got no, no worry about that. I mean, people are people. You know, everyone's got a different agenda. But it's like, it's when it, when it, when your agenda kind of starts to distort. The vision of the brand, which is should be all more, you know, no one is as big as the club, and um, there was just a bit of that going on. In the second section of the interview, I wanted to talk to Dave about his outlook on a number of topics. Dave has been very open about his views, and I wanted to discuss his belief on how we may rectify a number of these issues he talks about. You touched on briefly there about the people and the fact that they were looking to leverage you at the time. And mm. I know that you've spoken numerous times about diversity in the workforce and you've been known to have policies where 
you don't hire people like me, basically white British chaps who. Oh, have we do. To... <laughs> we do. No, we do. Yeah. I uh, know. As long I, as you're I, not a wanker. That yeah. Was, that... that was. I mean, yeah. We had uh, Kamarama. One of the things I remember talking to Jay Chai years ago, and he 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 would always say, "How big do you get before you get bad?" Yeah. And his theory was it was about seventy people. And he, he said, it's a bit like if you get into the lift in the New York offices chart day and you don't know the person you're standing opposite, you don't know their relationship issue, what they're working on, where they live and what they drive, then there's something, there's something's gone. Now, you have that when there's 30 of you and you're all sleeping in the same bed and you're all working late and, you know. Now, of course, that happens. But I think one of the things that always fascinated me was I would love to be, you know, the French have got a French culture. that They can have 56 million people and they're French. And yeah. the Italians can have a culture. Why can't a business get over 75 people without it all collapsing? Well, it's because there are too many agendas going on. The people who are running it are there for the money. The people who are there working are there to work to make money for the people upstairs, which is a corrupt agenda. So we had a very simple formula, which was uh, you know, karma-arma. The whole concept of the agency was it was based on karma, which is absolutely ridiculous. You know, we do the right thing. This is how naive and, and idealistic me and Narish were when we set it up. And it was, you know, out of the back of St. Luke's, which was cooperative. So we're, you know, real commies at heart. <laughs> but it was, you know, we do if we do the good thing over there, then it'll somehow come back to us, which is a beautiful idealistic vision of the world. But it doesn't really have much of a place in in a kind of very capitalist business like advertising but it kind of works and it still does i think they still live off that um but the the thing that kind of uh, that, that i think held us together was the fact that we didn't enter creative awards because i think for me they, that creative awards are the biggest cancer in the business well one of them there, there are two which is you know, the kind of the big groups but then the creative awards and the obsession with those is just awful and i think that they have held the business back generations i think they have corrupted what we do, and they have belittled what we do. Um, and I think it's also created a whole generation of people who work in the business who haven't got a fucking clue what they're supposed to be doing anymore, which is awful. And it's like trying to pull out of that nosedive is going to take a lot of effort, and I don't, I don't know if anybody's actually interested. So we said no creative awards right off the bat. But that's something I'd done before. We, you know, Narish and I did it at Chite Day. We did it at St Luke's. I'm not interested in what other people think of the work that we produce at the agency. All I care about is the people who do it and the people who pay for it and then the consumer that we're talking to. Yeah, you, you, you've said numerous times that, and <clears> I, I'm 100% behind you on this philosophy, that really we should be delivering results to our to our clients mm. uh, more so than uh, getting awards on our, on our whatever. Yeah. Which is where you talked earlier about marketing and I'm actually I, I'm, I'm quite interested in marketing because they have, they, they, they measure things. But then also I'm from a creative background and I appreciate ideas and I feel like there's there's two worlds there, one of them which is very metric-driven and the other one which is just all about creativity but oftentimes not very effective. And the, yeah. the, the harmony of the two is like the... the that's beautiful. That's, yeah. that's the moment. That's kind of the, the, the kind of the overlap that you want because it's like as a creative person, you're looking to solve problems, fix things, make things work. And then when you're given issues a problem and here's some data that either backs up that problem or shows you the way out i mean data is just a science all we are is scientists trying to find a cure for cancer and you're using all of that information but advertising is like scientists trying to cure cancer but they don't want to look at the information because they're scared of it whereas you think if you're going to try and do something that powerful and that worthwhile for those people for that kind of money and that time that you spend doing it 
that using all of that information would be the most valuable thing that you have. Well, we've got an absolute bucket full of information. <clears throat> yeah. right? Like it used to be, and I've ranted about this before, but um, you know, five people in a room, what do you think of this ad? And you know, there's one person who's particularly opinionated that sways everyone else. But now mm. we've got hundreds of thousands of search results from a you know this global search engine and where are people spending their time we've got cookies on every website and mobile data and gps data and we we know everything about people and let's also not forget that the people who are giving us that information are also big bullshitters so facebook they all get pulled up for all of that money that they've been making out of the media companies and out of brands and it's all bogus it's all fucking fake you know all the numbers don't don't add up um, you know, you've got stuff where, who is it? Is it P&G just pulled 100 million of their budgets out of digital and it had absolutely no effect whatsoever on sales? Now, I kind of go, wow, somebody has been ripping you off somewhere quite substantially over the last five to 10 years. 100 million and it had no effect at all. Now, that I think kind of summarizes one of the issues in advertising, which is just there's so much of how, it. How do they know that? Well, I think they've they've just stopped paying. But what I mean is, is if they haven't pumped it in, they don't know what their sales could have been. Yeah, I suppose so. Well, I suppose they're just comparing it to previous years. Yeah. They've just gone, wow, it had no effect at all. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I love this sort of beta landscape that we're in, which is just, let's just try that. If it doesn't work, turn it out. There was a lovely thing that I used to get told at Channel 4, which was, if it doesn't work, change it as quickly as possible. And they would do that. You know, I remember doing a job once, got a phone call at two in the morning from somebody saying, we need your permission to take it off air. And I was asleep and I just went, whatever, do it. Then in the morning, I went down, spoke to a guy called Steve, who was a director who directed the piece that was going on air that he had to take off. And he said, I said, did you get a phone call really early in the morning? He says, yeah, about half two. He says, all right, I've shot something this morning down at the multi-story car park. It's (laughs) rendering now. It'll be on air in an hour. And I just went, great, I'm in safe hands. They're all responsible adults who can sit there and go, if it's wrong, change it as quickly as possible. And that, that would never have happened in an ad agency. It would have taken three weeks just to get the five people in the room to work out what the brief is now going to be, you know, which is just pointless. But the thing at four was they also had this theory that if you do something really good, then change it just as quick. Because don't sit back, which is another thing that we're very guilty of in advertising, which is we go, hey, let's take the rest of the year off. We've just done an ad. Let's relax. It was good as well. Let's relax even longer. Drink some champagne. And they're there. It's just like if you're creating culture through your programming and your brand vibe, then everything that you do has to have that same mentality, which is just reinvent, reinvent, reinvent. And it's a very challenging tool. But if you once you get used to it, it is like being in the army. Once you get that into you, drilled into you, you just do it naturally. But we have no incentive to do that in advertising. Going on a slight tangent, I'm I'm keen for for young people to kind of uh, extract some wisdom from you. So, oh god, <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot of people that struggle to get into the industry. Yeah, um, don't bother. Yeah, well, that's one thing, right? Could you pass but, me that water? Of course, so. yeah. Um, what do you think young creatives do wrong? Well, the first thing they do is they go to colleges where they get taught how to do advertising by people who don't work in the business anymore for a huge amount of money. I mean, college, too expensive. For a one-year course, it costs you about, what, 10 grand? Now, I don't know anybody that can afford to pay 10 grand for a course and then try and live down here. So that's going to add another 10, 15 grand on it. The only people who can afford to do that are people whose mum and dad work in advertising. We don't need any more of them. We've already, they're the ones who fucked it up in the first place. We don't need their kids in here doing it again, trying to, have, trying to enjoy the fun that their mum and dad had. 
I think yeah, that's that's a big big problem. Education is uh, too restrictive, too expensive, um, and doesn't reflect society in any way at all. Because didn't, didn't you try and yeah, establish your own thing? Failed miserably. It was to try and set up a, a sort of free creative school. I didn't want it to be an ad school. It was to be a free creative school, so that if the next um, you know Johnny Ive or the next Dave Trot is on the Isle of Skye and it's a woman at the moment we just carry on holding our breath it's never going to happen but I just really wanted to try and do something that was government funded industry funded that would enable us to find new talent that was probably not even thinking about getting into the industry because my, my issue has always been that the people who want to get into the industry are the wrong people if they want to get into advertising you don't, don't need any people like that you want people who want to challenge it i suppose it's that thing of now that advertising has become recognized as a, a, a business where you can get paid quite a lot of money to be creative on paper it looks brilliant but it's a little bit like the analogy we used earlier which was once you've built up a business that is recognized and everyone goes oh yeah i really want to work there because it's really cool they would never go there when it was set up when it was starting up because they'd be like, oh, well, too risky but i'll go there now that it's established and it's got you know it's got momentum I think that's what the business has become. It's just become a bit... Yeah, everyone knows what it is. They look at the ads. No one sits there and goes, they're shit. Everyone just sort of goes, yeah, they're all right, aren't they? Look, you, go, you get to eat sushi a lot and you get to go on shoots and it's all great fun. But nobody challenges it. And I think we need more people that might... You know, what, what, the people that you mentioned earlier that aren't going into advertising, that are going off to set up their own businesses in whatever field... We need some of that entrepreneurial spunk to come in. And I mean, we were talking about Melanie Mercer earlier, yeah. who we've actually done a podcast with her, and she's hardcore, man. Mm. Like if she was in, if she was in any ad agency, they, you know, she they shit themselves. Yeah, yeah, they really would because it's entrepreneurs versus creatives are just different beasts, in my opinion. But what's interesting about what's interesting about her is she's still a woman. Yeah, she's not a geezer bird. Yeah. That's a really unpleasant term, but yeah. there are lots of women in the in the ad business that, are, like I said earlier, are, are kind of just as bad as the men. They love yeah. all the big cars. They love all the you know yeah. the carpet in the car, first class travel. They like all of that kind of stuff. And I think what this business needs is a load of shit kickers who are kind of getting roll their sleeves up and start messing around with stuff and challenging and going, why are we still doing it like that when we should be doing it like this? And why are we still employing people like that when we should be finding people like this? And why are we even fucking thinking about doing the same things that we were doing 40 years ago? Because that's effectively what we're still doing. We should be thinking, we should be modernising the business. Yeah, I often talk about, you know, I try, I try and explain to, to my, uh, to the people in the business, like, you know, <clears throat> about these emerging things which are happening, what can we do with this? Where, okay, it may not be massively mainstream right now, but we should be thinking and trying to push and do different stuff. Well, as creative problem solvers and entrepreneurs... It's, I mean, I think you mentioned it at the beginning, which is instead of sitting there trying to do the the interesting bit of pre-roll, we should be doing the content that the, the, the pre-roll sits behind or sits in front of. But we don't see it like that. We still think that all the joy is in the pre-roll. And then how do you get people to get past three seconds? Yeah. Why? Why? Yeah. We should be, do, you know, we thieve stuff constantly. We sit there and the first point of creativity is let's look what somebody else has done and then nick it. Well, Which we, is like, fuck, as creative people, shouldn't we be sitting there going, shouldn't, even if you found other things that you could do, like be a photographer, be an artist, be a director on the side, learn things that you can then apply to your job so that when somebody goes, oh, we've got this interesting brief, and then you can go, yeah, why don't we do it like this because I've worked out how to do it. Instead of, I've been watching 
YouTube and I found some bloke in Norway who makes these little videos in his kitchen and we just ripped that off. Just lazy. <laughs> Talking about ripping off, this transitions lovely into uh, the ongoing feud you've been having recently with mm. Sav- Savills, is that correct? Savills and Isabel. Yeah. yeah um, which you felt was kind of clear plagiarism of your work. Well, I've got to say, I mean, it was very, it was always very, very tongue in cheek. Yeah. You know, I took, I mean, my, my Instagram feed is just a joke. Yeah. There's no, there's no seriousness in there whatsoever. Did you, I quite liked their reply. I thought it was quite funny. Yeah. What yeah. did you think? Well, it was entirely predictable. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of, it was, it was funny because I just got sent it by somebody um, who said, oh, look, did you do this? And I was like, no, I didn't. And then I just played a game with it. I just said, oh, look, you know, printed a picture of it and just said, oh, published a picture of it and just said, you know, the chairman has, they, they did take it, but they've, they've paid me and the chairman's going to let me have his, his house in Lanzarote for two weeks. <laughs> and and then somebody got in contact and said, blimey, that's amazing. How'd you get the chairman from Savills to... I said it was a fucking joke. And then I did another one saying he's not only apologised and I had we, we bought tickets for Chelsea Arsenal, but he's also given me some of his favourite jazz mags and people were still going, how'd you do that? How'd you get, how'd you get his jazz mags? I was like, it's a joke. And then they then contacted me and said, oh, we'll... Because I said to him, oh, you know, what's this all about? Can you explain this? As a, again, tongue, tongue in cheek. And then they said, oh, we'll check with our agency. And I went, oh, I didn't really... I thought, I thought it was just something they'd done in-house. So I then contacted Isabel. And then I just thought, right, now let's have a bit of fun. And said, right, well, if you're going to use my... If you're going to use stuff that is very, very similar to mine, I'm just going to use Savills with a Z. And I'll do some ads saying we sell houses and flats with a Z. And do it as a screen print, which I did. And, um, and then... It just escalated from there because the more they ignored me, the more I just thought, well, fuck, if you're going to ignore me, I'm just going to keep going. You caused a nice little shitstorm on the internet for the creative industry for a little while. Well, it was <laughs> it just quite fun, It was fun, it? Uh, but it was, it was funny because obviously I, I sit in both camps. You know, I work in advertising and I know this shit happens all the time and I'm guilty of it as well, guaranteed. Well, this is, like, even, uh, you know, the best examples I've found today are the Sony Bouncy Balls and the, the Honda Cog ad. Yeah. And both of them have been... So th- th- there's a question here around, you know, this thing about originality, like how, mu- how much stuff is original when, you know, we're all an amalgamation of our inputs. Yeah, totally, totally. And I, I absolutely agree with that. I don't, I don't think there's any such thing as originality. I think what you can do is, but there, there is a pride moment, which is if you're going to be inspired by somebody or you're going to be, uh, yeah, I suppose the word is inspired or reversioning something, is do it with a little bit of dignity. I mean, there was a famous story of a of a very famous brand campaign that was done for IKEA, which in the states, which showed people having you didn't know it was in IKEA, but they were having arguments in their front room or in their bedroom, and then you pulled out and you just went, you know, they're actually in the store. Very funny work, very very funny work. Um, and then MFI in this country did exactly, I mean, exactly the same idea, and it was one of those things where you know they would have seen it. Guaranteed, because it was out and it, and it had been very, very well publicised in the industry, and they would have just gone, "Well, fuck, it doesn't matter. It ran in the states, doesn't matter. People over here wouldn't have seen." It. Now, there's a very good point to that, which is, well, you know, do do, do Oasis are, are they just like the Beatles? Yeah, probably, you know. And but are they a different era? Yeah, they are a different era. And are they kind of rude, whereas the Beatles were charming? Yeah. But it's still, you know, there, there are similarities in there, which you can. It's up to the consumer to, or you know, to sit there and judge. Um, but with with that with that thing with Savills, I mean, it was like for me, it was pretty cut and dried. But you know what? I, you know, there was never any moment when I wanted to sue them or where I wanted any money. I just wanted them to say sorry. Yeah. And uh, it kind of escalated because then people were 
mates of mine on it or people I knew on Instagram, I didn't even know half of them, were, were saying, what about this one? And they would, they would then do a very famous... Because my point was, oh, look, there's loads of other brilliant artists out there. I'm just a shitty little screen printer. What about, you know, Roy Lichtenstein? Imagine if he changed one of his ads to... One of his pictures to an ad for, for Savills. And it just escalated from there. And then people were sending them in to me and I was just publishing them. <laughs> And then, and then it was. It only changed when a bloke from the Evening Standard phoned me up one night. I'd just been, I was at, dropping my kid off playing football, and the phone rang, and I thought it was another one of these like PPI people. And I said, "Hello," and he was like, "Hello, yeah, my, I'm from the Evening Standard." And I was like, "Oh shit, what's happened now?" And he said, "What's all this stuff about Savills?" And, and I said, "All right," and I explained it to him. And he said, "Well, how much are you trying to sue him for?" And I said, "Mate, I'm not trying to sue him. I don't want any money. I want chicken." I want Nando's. That's all I wanted. I just said, if you get me Nando's, you get me Nando's for 10 and you buy one of my prints, I'll go away. But they just weren't responding. So I just said, well, fuck it. The longer you don't, if you don't respond, I'm just going to keep going because I can keep going. I've got lots of energy. <laughs> um, but also because I'm, you know, I'm an, I am an artist and also I work in advertising. So I know both sides of the, I know the play. You know, I know how they do it. Well, let, let's talk about your art because... Um, and also on that, I, I was listening to a really interesting interview on This Week in Startups the other day, and it was with a chap from the Pirate Bay. Yeah. And he had this really interesting point, which I don't really know the answer to, which was he was talking about if you take a photo, you assume that you have the copyright. But yeah. if I take a photo of your artwork, who owns the copyright? Yeah. Um, with your art, uh, this is a slight tangent from what I was just talking about, but... Did why did you get into it? Was it and also why the maps? I'm cu- I always think that sometimes I see people like Damien Hurst, for example, and they do dot paintings, and I go, yeah. do you know what? Like you know, the whole advertising industry, a lot of it's just based around talking a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> you know, could you can you just fictitiously like create this this image for yourself, which is very easy to do in the online space. You can you can make yourself whoever you want to be to some degree, and um, thank you. And, it, you know, like, were you, were you ex- was it a social experiment as much as it was art, you know? A little s- bit, a little bit. I mean, I, you know, I trained as a graphic designer. Um, I've always made stuff. I used to make clocks uh, out of things I found. I'd get old lumps of wood and I'd chop a hole in it and put a clock face in it. And um, I used to do a lot of paintings with, when I lived in Spitalfields, I'd find old lumps of wood and uh, pallets and make paintings. Out of that, so I've done it for a long time. The thing that always used to frustrate me, or that the thing I loved about art, is that you can have an idea, you can see something on the street, you can grab it, you can repaint it, repurpose it, turn, make lamps. I used to make lots of lights out of old drum kits, and I'd walk down to Brick Lane Market and see a drum kit and go fuck, and get it home, and then put lights in it and turn it into, and then sell them in shops. And I love that idea of that instant, it, that kind of spontaneity of creativity, where you could have an idea and then you could sell it really really quickly whereas in advertising everything takes so long you know you need three weeks for the planner to write the brief and you get three weeks to think up the idea then it goes through death by a thousand cuts with the process and then you end up a year later making something you don't even know what you're doing about it anymore i mean it's like my god and that's the bloody crappy process that we've created we could be really really quick because when i worked at channel four they're quick i've worked at national newspapers yeah they respond really fast you know they can make a paper in a day Advertising, we can't even make, we can't even organise a meeting in a day. We can't even organise <laughs> biscuits in a meeting in a day. Um, and the thing I loved about the art with the screen printing was purely because when I left Karma, I, I thought, right, I really want to learn how to save a life, sculpt and screen print in that year I'm not allowed to work. 
Screen printing happened to be the very first thing I did. And I just went, wow, this is great. Rented desk space. And then I just had this mental idea that if I could be, an, if I could be a creative and get paid to do it, that's, that's my dream. And looking back, I would go, blimey, you know, the last three years I had at Karma Armour, I was just the old grey bloke who they wheeled out and put into meetings with clients who'd go, well, look, this is the founder. Yeah, he's really important. The founder's here. And I thought, fuck, is that, is that my role now? Because I still think I have quite a lot to offer above and beyond being the old grey bloke that comes in and goes, hello, everybody, I'm rather old, I'm the founder. <laughs> Please trust me in when I say that this work is amazing. I was just like, I don't want to do that. I want to sit there and do some work. And I suppose that's one of the th- one of the issues with the business is that you sometimes you promote yourself into oblivion. You know, you just as you the more experience you get, some people shouldn't be running companies. Some people should just be really good at being heavy hitters. But there's a kind of there's a weird thing that we keep having to be pushed, and suddenly you find yourself running a company. You shouldn't be doing it. There's a world now where people are trying to self uh, or when I say self fund, get audience funding and that kind of thing. Have you vent- have you <coughs> looked into it? patreon and that kind of stuff how, how do you mean uh just uh, there's websites where you say you know i want to pursue art this is my art do you like my art if you do how about you donate a pound a month i'll do uh blimey no i never even knew about that i mean i suppose in a, in a way that's kind of the process i went through with with the print club stuff is i remember going upstairs to the um because i come from you know an advertising background you have a, a real discipline you know a brief is written you you work out who your audience is you look at that, you look at every aspect of it, and then you create a piece of work that's going to appeal to yourself and then also an audience with a response that you, you kind of want them to garner. I went to the um, the gallery owner at Print Club, which is just where I happened to start printing. You know, I hadn't printed in like 30 years. When I was at college, I'd, I'd done it, but I mean, I never really did it. I just learned how to do it. I didn't have any any style. And I said to her, go on, tell me, tell me, you know, tell me what sells. And she told me that there was... You know, people really like parrots, and people really. And there's one artist <laughs> who does pineapples, and he does a lot of stuff. He sells a lot of work. And I was like, wow, wow, pineapples and parrots. Do a parrot on a pineapple. Yeah, that would really sell. Or a parrot, or a pineapple on a parrot. Uh, either way, it would sell. And I was a little bit kind of. I was, I've got to say, I was a little bit disappointed because I thought, you know, they're uh, beautiful pictures, beautiful pictures of parrots, and the, the stuff he prints pineapple. They look fucking cool, but. I've always worked in a in a business, you know, again, groomed by Steve Henry, who's sitting in the back of my head going, why is it different? Why is that going to cut through? And I suppose um, I like, you know, I've been groomed to create creativity that, got, that gets a reaction. So that if it's on TV or if it's a poster, that people are going to stop minimum and then look at it minimum or listen to it minimum and then respond to it in some way. If I'm not doing that, it's a failure. Now... The whole idea of hanging a picture of a parrot on my wall filled me with dread because I just thought, why would I do it? I mean, I like parrots. I like pineapples. But do I want a picture of a parrot on my wall? Does that say what I want it to, you know, you get somebody back to your house and they go, yeah, he's got a parrot on his wall. He's got pineapple in his bathroom. What does that say about <laughs> me? It just says he's kind of, you know, he's all right, really. He's got nice stuff. And so I, I said to her, you know, tell me what sells. And she told me. And then I thought, and then she said, what kind of stuff do you do? And I'd just done a print of a, of a, of um, four colour picture of some dogs that I found that I, it was called Bad Dog and I did two of them and they're just pictures of these little dogs in French with their names in French it's called Vilain Chien and I just thought it was a funny thing to do four colour which means you know you print cyan you know, yellow, cyan, magenta, black but they've all got erections <laughs> and you don't notice it at first I'll, I'll give you one because I've never sold one but I remember I said to her I said I, I print pictures of dogs she went oh yeah dogs people like dogs 
I said, it's four colour. And she went, yeah, yeah. And she looked at it and she went, yeah, they're... Because I'd only been printing about a month. And she said, yeah. they're not really that good, are they? And I said, I know. And then she went, ooh, and dropped it. And she said, why have they all got erections? I said, it's funny. <laughs> it's funny. Now, I don't know anybody that thinks about doing a print that's funny. Most prints are just done to look on the wall and you go, oh, that's nice. Whereas I was just sort of thinking, if you can make it funny, that's funny, isn't it? Yeah. And so I started doing more stuff like that and... And then I sort of noticed, and then it was just by complete chance that I did the maps. And I went down to um, an old antique shop and I saw a load of these blue folded maps. I thought, what are they? And I opened it up and they're beautiful. And they're kind of printed on, on paper that's then backed with linen. And I thought, well, I wonder what I could do with these. What if I, if I got you know, a map of, and I bought five maps and one was like Gloucestershire. And I, then I looked online and I thought, I wonder if I could find a joke about, one was Newcastle. And I said, any, any funny jokes about Newcastle? And there was one said, what's, what's the difference between a kangaroo and a kangaroo? A kangaroo is a marsupial found in Australia, and a kangaroo is what a Geordie shouts when he's stuck in the lift. And so I printed that joke on the map. I only did one, one of each map and joke. And, uh, and they all sold. And I think, oh, I was like, oh, okay, this is quite interesting because I'm printing onto something that's... Like when you start with a blank bit of paper... You've got to kind of try and create something that you think people are going to like. Whereas when you print onto something else, the thing I get obsessed by is there's there's already enough shit in the world. You don't have to keep making new stuff. I only like driving second-hand cars. I, you know, I want to live in an old house. I don't buy second-hand clothes because I'm not that tight. But I like the idea of that something having giving it a bit of a afterlife. And so all the stuff now, now it's just become a terrible obsession with my OCD working overtime is that I only print onto things that I find. So it might be a sheet of metal or it might be playing cards or dollar bills or well, that's maps. Well, that's going to come at you with the uh, Savile's debate, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah. But well, well, the thing I... And I thought I'd get into trouble with it, with the maps and, and printing onto pages of old um, like Ladybird books. But the way I look at it is I've already paid for it. Yeah. So Ladybird, you got your money. Now what I choose to do with it, if I choose to use print, it as toilet print, paper or print, print something on it or just put it on a shelf, that's entirely up to me. If people then choose to buy it, well, that's entirely up to them. But the transaction between you and me has already happened. Yeah. And so I kind of squared that up. I mean, I'm using their yeah. thing. You know, I'm using their <laughs> thing, but I'm kind of giving it a little... I suppose it is. It's, it's the same argument. But they never tried that. Yeah. And well, I got, see, chick- see, and I got, got chicken, dog, so hey. Dog with an erection on it. It's completely well, different. Well, they're funny. It's a yeah. nice... It's a nice... It's a nice... Print. <laughs> I say it's a nice print. I've got one on the wall, and, and I... We, a little kid came in to see my kids and they were like, look, look, little doggy. And then they went, oh, mummy. <laughs> and then she went, oh. And then you saw the mum trying to explain to a two-year-old child why they've all got little dicks out. And it was just, <laughs> it was really embarrassing, but uh, was, made me laugh. I was going to say that throughout your kind of career, you've, to some degree, you'd like to be an anarchist. Mm. Uh, and if it's okay with you, I'd like to share some quotes that I found oh, particularly God. amusing. Um, Where so have you been finding all this stuff? I've just I've been doing my research. It's what you're supposed to do with these things. Okay. Um, so you said you couldn't earn enough as an artist to sustain your huge uh, blow <laughs> habit. Which I thought yeah. was a good one. Yeah. Uh, you said you were very happy at CPMB unless yeah. someone was prepared to pay you more money, which I thought was interesting that you were... Uh, and then finally you said... Um, you stopped worrying about client meetings because at the end of the day, worst case scenario, if you could beat them up, it, you'd be fine. No, no, no. That, that's, I don't know where you got that one from. <laughs> I've got a theory that uh, because it, what it, this whole thing of 
the relationship that you're into, which is you're having to do this kind of smoke and mirrors moment when at the end of the day, you're going to try and give a piece of work to somebody and you're hoping they're going to buy it. And you have to do a little bit of a con man moment where you have to kind of convince them that it's the right thing. And they have to trust you. And sometimes if you're older, it makes it easier. And if you're really well respected, it makes it easier. And if you're, you know, if you've got an interesting haircut or a nice coloured suit, it makes, you know, there are lots of little things. You become a little bit of a magician. Yeah. And your job is to sit there and make somebody engage with something. Um, And often they don't really want to engage with it because they don't like you very much. They don't like your agency. They don't like what you do. You're a bit of a pain in the arse. And they, and, and, and historically, you've treated them quite badly because that's what the industry has done to a lot of our clients. So I always have this sort of funny game in the back of my head, which is when I, when I go into a meeting, I used to sit there and think, if I had to, could I kill this person if I got into a fight with them? Could I kill them? Because I used to be sometimes be quite intimidated by people. I'm not, I'm, I'm not very confident. And I think a lot of the time, when I, certainly in the early part of my career, I was quite shy. And you would sort of think, God, it's terrifying going in and presenting work and, and having to memorise all the words. It's like being in a play. And when you do a pitch and it's like, <laughs> and then we did this. And then <laughs> have to laugh in the right place and then segue into somebody else. Oh, fuck, I hate that kind of stuff. Yeah. Absolutely <laughs> hate it. And, uh, and I, you, you look at clients and they would just be yawning, going, oh, God, these idiots from London. Look what they're doing now. So I used to just play this game with myself, which is, if it came to it, could I kill you? And it always made me suddenly just go, ah, fuck it. If I can kill them, what am I worried about? Because if it comes to it, the worst thing that's going to happen is there's going to be a fight. And if I know I can kill them, easy day. It's happy days. Uh, this, this, take... so you're gonna, this is going to sound dreadful. No, no, it's actually interesting because when I heard it, it played into this little philosophy I've got on my own. And, and this takes it into a lot more serious kind of gender uh, debate thing, which I d- don't necessarily want to get into, but... This one chap who I've worked for, a guy called Alex Asaley, he right. used to be the founder of Jawbone, the right. uh, speakers and stuff. Yeah, yeah. This guy is like a Stanford educated, his brother was in, involved in Skype, very, very smart guy. Yeah. He's also six foot three and like a burly beast of a man. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> he's the only person who like basically made me feel like a child again when <laughs> I was working for him. And, yeah. and I analysed it and, I, you know, I... I all my bosses, I've tried to talk to them as just normal people, as I would a friend. Hopefully they treat me with respect as opposed to, like, this authority figure or whatever. But with him, I was, I've was i always felt like one of his underlings, you know what I mean? And I, and I analysed it and I was like, it's because this man could kill me. Yeah. And, um, and I feel like that subconscious power thing is still... Well, I think it, it always helps. I mean, I know it's going to sound really, really primal. But I think it does help. If you're a big bloke or you've got something about you, your personality is big, bigger. You know, when I said it at the beginning of the, you know, the conversation, I think that, you know, the, the business is like 95% of it is donkeys. And the other, the other 5% are tigers. And, you know, you, you, you look at generals in the army and you go, fuck me, I'd follow that bloke into hell and high water. He's on a white horse. He's got, like, ivory <laughs> handles on his gun and he's smoking a fag. I'll do it. You know, do you remember that brilliant scene of the, 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 the kind of the general in uh, Apocalypse Now who's kind of walking around on the beach while they're being shot at and they're going surfing? There's a kind of mentality that you want to, you know, I think leaders, and, and, and it's at every level. I don't mean just the people who are leading the company. I mean, at every level, there will be people in the organisation who you find yourself magnetically 
drawn towards because you think, wow, they've just whether it's just a confidence or they've got a swagger or they've just got the ability to be nice to people and they can they can you know sometimes they they're ass kickers sometimes they're huggers but they have the ability to sort of make people feel special. Now that guy that you're talking about, six foot three, because you're working for him, you feel that he can crush you and he probably could. But also there's probably a moment when he looks at you and goes, you know, I'm, my, my role as his boss is also to be his mentor, to look after him, to father him in some way or mother him in some way so that you're there to try and build them up and help them. And then, you know, when they want to go off and be brilliant somewhere else, you let them do that. And I think that that's one of the really important roles in the business is this is a, I don't know, I kind of... We use the phrase, you know, mercenary versus missionary, but I think that we're not very missionary in the way that we interact with our staff. We don't look after our people as, <laughs> considering they're our only asset, um, we don't look after them at all. And I think that 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 kind of the analogy of me thinking that it's, you know, I can have, I can relax and enjoy my life more because I know I can kill the person I'm presenting to, um, is probably just a sort of oversimplified way of breaking it down to the end of the day he wants something i might have something and if i can just relax into it and be a normal person about it by just shedding all of that bullshit that when we become corporate we kind of instigate and it becomes a play and an act and you have to dress a certain way and you have to say things a certain way you know what life is way too short for that and i just want to kind of work with some nice people, have as much fun as possible and and do as much good stuff as possible. And if I can do that by being myself and not having to change myself to be somebody else's vision of what I should be, then I'll happily do that. In the final segment of the interview, I wanted to find out how Dave's experiences have shaped his outlook in life. As someone who has had such a varied and exciting career path, I imagine that he'd have many opportunities to refine his philosophies when it comes to the creative pursuit and living a meaningful life. And I wanted to see if he would open up about some of the more aspirational and emotional aspects of being a creative person. There was, sorry, there was something interesting that you said earlier on about... Um, I can't remember we were talking about it. It, was, it led me to think about something. That I remember when I was at Channel 4. Channel 4, they had a really, really interesting structure, employment structure. You weren't paid... You would, you would sign up for a two-year contract, which I thought was a really interesting way of working. So imagine you know, you're 22, you get a job in an agency and you sign a two-year gig. So you suddenly have a two-year window where you can work out how badly you want to stay, what you want to achieve. There's a, there's a, kind of, there's a hurdle moment, which is at the end of the first year, the end of the first six months, second six months, third six months, you can kind of go, right, these are the things as an individual within that organisation I want to try and achieve. Whereas in advertising, you're just hired... And then after two years or 18 months, you either decide to fuck off and, or, or after three years or after 10 years, you're made redundant or you're fired or whatever. And one of the things I loved about four was treating it like a college so that I think you sort of mentioned it. I can't remember how you said it, but it was perfect because you go there and you use what you've learned in one place and roll that into what you do in your next place. And I think that's a hugely valuable part of our progression as creative individuals that you're inspired by different places by different people even six foot three people who you're terrified of but you're inspired from it and you'll use that experience to then become better or try something different at another place and i think it's that mentality of almost treating it like a kind of 
a period of education as you go there. And I always thought that I, I always wanted to try and do that with any businesses I set up is have a kind of two year contract that you just go, you just sign it. I, I, th- I think uh, back in the day, the, at Saatchi and Saatchi, they used to they tried to implement almost like a football model where uh, whereby you'd, people would sign a contract and then yeah. it'd be like, oh, if you want to buy them, then you yeah. transfer, you pay us some money. Pay yeah, what trans- great idea. Yeah. But I think it's a really interesting idea because then yeah. they they are your asset. But yeah. we've we've kind of created this business that is very f- flabby. And it kind of, it's too easy. And we sort of, you know, half the things that we do, we could do in a quarter of the time. But we've sort of, it's, it's in our interest to take as long as possible because that's how we make our money or that's how we judge ourselves and that's how we get paid by our clients. And so you've got this thing where everything is just v- vanilla and, and to, to, no one's to your, worried. To your point around uh, hopping from one place and taking away lessons, I mean, there was this seminal moment in my life when I was younger and basically I'd broke up with a girlfriend and I started reading about uh, psychology and how to chat up girls and stuff. And what I learned from that was... You know what you've got to do? you just got to, if you think you can kill them in a fight. Yeah, that's, that's always a good thing. But they're very dangerous. <laughs> but it, it taught me about how that actually applied to psychology and how it could be more personable and how... Yeah to your point around personality is a big thing and and is a a, a magnet towards you um and that's how i learned about books and then from books i learned by learning about different subjects that i could pull that into what i was doing creatively and then i mean to some degree you're quite close to where i am in the world but other weeks we interview people from completely different places yeah and we can really pull insights and go you know how can we apply this knowledge to what we're doing now yeah and that's just a healthy way to be, I believe. And if you ma- maintain that curiosity. Actually, yeah, but that's quite an intelligent way of doing it. I mean, it's, you know, if you don't mind me blowing smoke up your ass, that's a very intelligent way of doing it because that kind of shows some level of maturity that it's like, you know, I am genuinely interested in listening to people from all diverse ways of working and diverse backgrounds because that might actually make me better. Now, most people in advertising think that they are already geniuses. And that's one of the one of its failings, I suppose, is that we we have been groomed to think that we're the we're the smartest people in the room, and we're not. And I think anything that we can do in order to help us become smarter or more informed or more interesting has got to be a good thing. But again, it's just that weird thing is like it's it's just a very male trait, which is. Once we feel like we've achieved anything, then that's what we do. We we just kind of we milk that. And I've seen it happen to so many great agencies. You know, Hal Henry was a brilliant agency at the time when it was constantly challenging. And then the minute it became a little bit too, it kind of achieved quite a lot of things. It just, it sat back. And then it just employed lots of people who were quite happy to go there and go, oh, you know, I'll go there to do the next Maxell ad or I'll go there to do the next Tango ad rather than, I'll go, you know, they were there for selfish reasons rather than, I want to go there and fucking just reinvent it. That's what people should be doing. I think uh, just to is a bit of a, a bit of a, a lazy segue, but I, what I've noticed is that a lot of my friends and myself included. So when I was in my early twenties, I just went through an extremely bad period of severe anxiety and depression. Yeah, and it was all entangled in. Were you working in the business at the time? I was, yeah, and I was. And what was driving that? Do you think? I was working extremely late hours. I had yeah. very high aspirations. Yeah. I'd achieved all my aspirations within six months of being in the industry and I didn't really know where to go next. All of the things that I thought were going to come out of it, I won an international award yeah. and it was like, 
well done, Rick. And then the next day, my life was exactly the same. And I was just like, <laughs> right, okay, what, what, what am I doing? What am I know? supposed to be? Yeah, what's the point? And yeah, and also being very self-aware, being like, you know, I'm going to die one day. I don't, what the fuck am I doing doing this or whatever? Yeah. And still to this day, I have those thoughts. And I think as a creative person, you go through peaks and troughs. And But I seem to notice <clears> that... Um, a lot of young people, when they transition into the industry, go through it, and it's mm. like um, I've seen it with multiple people. Uh, some, some of whom struggle much worse than others. Yeah. Myself, I being like a very personal development type individual. You know, I started yoga, I started doing uh, meditation, all this stuff, and I take I took away some things from that, and in order to make sure it's not an ongoing thing for me, but. Yeah. Um, have you ever been through those kind of things? And all, Absolutely. And also, you know, how, how have you learned to deal with them? Because you're quite a, you love a rant and you, yeah. and you get, I can imagine that you probably sometimes go, oh, what the fuck am I doing? You know what? It's weird. I mean, I think Pete, it's one of those things because my, my outlet at the moment is the written word on a computer or on a, on a blog post or on Instagram. I don't think I'm a ranter. <laughs> so I always think it's just, I'm sort of doing it very, very tongue-in-cheek, but it's one of those things that when you read emails or you read posts, sometimes it's very difficult to read. You have to kind of write extra stuff in there to make sure that people know you're taking the piss. Yeah. And, you know, my thing is I take the piss. I mean, it's like, you know, that Trivago poster was m- more of a piss take because it's just so dreadful. I mean, it's like it's not even try- like trying to analyse it. I mean, it's like looking at something that's just meaningless. Um, but it was there to make a point. It's it's weird. I mean, back to your point about kind of confidence and and sort of you know the the the, the sort of the stability of the mind and also the the fragility of the mind. I mean, you know, when I was a like I said, I'm, I'm extraordinarily shy, very very shy. Uh, have a huge amount. It take me a long time to get a confidence where I sort of think I'm of uh, value. And I don't know if that's something that just happens when you get older. I don't think it's something that happens when you become successful. I, I have no idea what success means. You know, it's like, I don't think it's about money. I don't think it's about what kind of car you drive. I don't think it's about any sort of achievements. I think it's about, there's a, there's a sort of, there's a sort of, becomes a sort of a kind of knowing in you that you kind of think, yeah, I'm all right. I'm the, all right at this. The, and the, I, can, I know you're going to continue, but just to interject it for a second, the reason I thought I'd ask you this is because by people in the advertising standards, you've set up and and grown uh, what would many consider to be a successful agency? Yeah. You've done lots of great work. Um, you've effectively like hit the ceiling of what is our industry. Uh, <clears throat> like metaphorically, maybe you feel like there's a lot more to, to come or whatever. Yeah. But I I believe that maybe you hit that, and then you it's in the similar way that how I ticked off my to do list and gone. Oh fuck! You know what do I do next? Do you, is this does the same thing happen when or? <laughs> It's difficult. I don't even know what my to-do list is. I mean, it's like I don't think I've ever had a plan. You know, I had a weird thing when I was fourteen. I I died. I had an I had an accident where I was found hanging off the stairs at home. Um, uh, sort of have no idea what happened. Um, you know, the ambulance came in and went, "He's dead." Uh, my mum went, "No, he fucking isn't." Get him going again, and they kind of got me going again. I went into spasm, went into a coma. I was in a coma for about ten days. Came out. Now I, I, that has never really affected me, but. It has affected me in a way which I just sort of think, wow, man, I could easily have got, not been here. And uh, and so having squeaking every fucking molecule of fun out of anything is really important to me. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. 
I don't do any of that shit. I don't cheat. So, on... so, so is all your blow comments? The, is that all? It's just, just a joke. It's just a joke. I don't, I've never done cocaine. <laughs> uh, never done it. Never you're, done it. You're. It's funny. If people always sort of say to me, "Oh God, you know, you must be really pleased about that deal with Accenture," and I'm like, "Yeah, man, I made so much money. I can now I built, built furniture out of cocaine." And they're like, yeah. "Dave." Yeah, well, I've never touched the stuff. <laughs> Only one, you know, all the wankers I know do it. I mean, it's just, you know, I, I worked in an, I've worked in an industry where it's riddled with drug abuse and booze abuse. Never done any. I don't do either. And oh, I, I, it's never. It's not because I've got a problem. I mean, I, I like driving cars and riding motorbikes, and either of those two things don't make it work. <laughs> and so, I've just had this. It's a total piss take. It's yeah. a total piss take. And for me, the. There is a huge fragility in the mind, which is, you know, and I go through it now. I'm fucking 53. I've been in the business a long time. But I still do it. You know, if I have a bad day at the office, I'll go home and I'll feel really shit. And I'll go, God, man, you know, they didn't like that piece of work we did. In fact, you know, last week we, did, we presented a bit of work to a client and she was kind of underwrought and underwhelmed by it. And I just kind of walked out and I went, fuck, you know, should I even be doing this anymore? And then the following day you do a piece of work that somebody loves and you go, yeah. And it's like that. You know, my life is like that. It's just complete up and down. But I would, when you when you cram all of those up and downs into a short space of time, you end up with a nice band. And it's at least it's interesting. You know, I know like other people who are just super bland. They go on the motorway. They do 45 all the way to the coast. And it's all happy. That is easy. But it's just not the way I've been cut out. You like a I've bit of turbulence. It. Well, it, I don't know whether I like it or whether I, whether I attract it or whether it's just something that I, that I go for or whether it just happens to me. I, I like to think, I mean, as one of my favourite sayings is smooth seas don't make great sailors. And I think that if you are the kind of person that can handle that kind of shit, somebody, if there is somebody playing chess with you, they will just constantly put you in that situation. You know, I had a wonderful job at CPP. I was getting paid very nicely. I had, you know, pretty to be the you know, creative director or chief creative officer, whatever the hell, whatever the hell that is, at an agency like CPP, um, which is going to go through amazing changes now that they've uh, they're doing a, the thing with F and B Forsman and Bodenforce in Sweden, who are a fantastic agency. You know, it's like, man, I just jumped out of one of the nicest aeroplanes there is, you know, with no parachute. People must think I'm absolutely mental. I think I'm fucking mental. But I still did it. And I did it with somebody else who I think is totally mental. And he must be looking at me as we're falling, just going, Dave, you're a head case. Why have we done this? But I think that there's something else out there. And you'll uh, go to the grave going, I, my life wasn't boring. Yeah. Yeah, but, it, but it's... You know, it, whether it was the thing I had when I was 14 when I died or whether it was when I hit 50 and I just thought, man, I've just, I'm running out of time. And I just think... If I could, you know, what are you going to be remembered for? I don't think, I don't want to be remembered for work. I don't want to be remembered for creating businesses that employed lots and lots of people that made them laugh. I, I just, I don't know. I just want to Ho- be remembered hopefully for Hopefully a dog with an erection. A dog with an erection, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or being the biggest, the biggest dog-ass puncher in, a, in South London. Just to, like, counter that point a little bit, I, I had a similar experience. So I had a, I had a brain bleed when I was in, at uni. <laughs> okay. How and, old are you? 21 no wow. i was 20 and it was turning 21 shit and what uh, happened? i had a malformation uh it was in the gym and basically i burst a vessel wow. and and so i was had to have gamma knife treatment which is basically where they gamma what gamma knife basically it was either brain surgery or this like cutting edge laser treatment and because of my age they offered me that thankfully i wasn't in america because it would have cost me like a hundred grand or something yeah, yeah anyway they screw this cage onto your scalp and there's a few things I think uh, analysing myself as to why I'm incredibly driven, but 
sometimes to your point about fun like ever since then i've appreciated every day hmm. and to the to the well, how to old are you now 27 shit so it's really quite recent yeah but i've kind of lived a, to an extremely unhealthy uh you know fun doesn't really come into my life very often right and it's something i'm really working on like the chap in there ollie mills who's in the other room for mm. people listening like he's just a joker you know like he was he was telling me all the jokes i should say to you on the way here right. uh, you know um and i need to surround myself with people like that but just to I'm, I'm saying this for the people listening to go you know some people turn it into fun some people turn it into uh what i've turned it into which is getting up at five in the morning going to bed at 10 and just like working you know, and, and it's unhealthy. And, well, and, and it's, it's, I mean, it is, it is. But, you know, let's not forget that we are professional and we have a role to play. We're a service. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that we seem to forget in the, in the business is that we think we're the, we're, the, we're, the, we're the organ grinder. We're not, we're the monkeys. We're employed by people yeah. to help them win. And what they do is they use our expertise. And so we're professionals. And I, I remember it kind of reminded me, I don't like Arsenal, but I always use this as an example. I remember when Arsene Wenger came over, English football teams would still have a cigarette at half time and a cup of tea and a pie and then a you know punch up in the evening. Whereas when he came along, he just went, no, 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 you're professionals. Eat pasta because if you eat pasta before a game, it will help you run longer and it will give you more energy. Now, you just sort of think applying science and a bit of rigour and professionalism to your career isn't a bad thing. Now, we're moderately lucky in comparison to footballers who might have a lifespan, a career span of about 10 to 20 years if they're lucky. With a brain, without having a bleed at the age of 21, <laughs> you know, you could have a long career where you could still be using your brain consistently. And the good thing is when you look at AI and all that kind of stuff that's coming in to replace the brain, it will never happen because I think the, the human brain is a much more powerful engine and uh, computer than anything that could ever be created. I think it would be very good at creating Travago ads. But we don't want any more of those. <laughs> and so I think that there's a there's a professionalism, which you know, that's why I've never done coke. That's why I, I mean I've drunk. I've, you know I've, I've been drunk before. I've done stupid things before, but I don't do it now. I, I think that there's something. Um, I like the idea of maybe it's an, it's a very Italian thing as well, being not losing control. But I was also, you know, given a, a job to be creative director when I was 28, so I was very very young. You suddenly find yourself myself and Narish working at Chiat Day, running an agency where you had to sit in meetings and, you know, when, when you were told to get in you know, for a meeting, nine o'clock meeting, you were in there quarter to nine, 20 to nine, half past eight. You didn't turn up at 10 and go, sorry, you know, I was out on a piss last night. It just doesn't, you have to set an example. And I took it very seriously and I was just like, right, you know, you don't fuck the staff, you don't do drugs and if you go out on the piss, you do it harder and longer than anybody and then you're in way earlier than everybody and you have to look <laughs> indestructible. So they just look at you and they go, Shit, man, he's indestructible. I can count on him. Well, after doing that for about two weeks, I just thought, my God, if I don't do it, it's easier. And so you just you, you treat it like a profession. And I think, you know, don't worry about working hard. If you have got ambitions to run an agency, to run a department, to build a business in whatever respect you want to do, I think that that grounding of being professional is step number one. If you've got talent, if you if you you can be a professional, work really fucking hard, and that will outplay talent half the time. Well, it's, it's to your point there. I think uh, like to extract a little bit 
I've been thinking about this recently that actually one of the first things that you need to do as a, as a professional is to build trust and and if you're reliable yeah. uh, and, and deliver consistently or whatever and people know in the hard times you're going to be there you're not fucking around well I used to work with a guy who you go let's have a meeting at 9 he would turn up at 8.59 and 59 seconds and he'd be there now he'd turn up he'd on t- technically he was on time but it was you then spend 10 minutes twatting about, talking about all the stuff you've been doing the night before. Now, I'm the total opposite. If I've got a meeting at nine, I'll be there at half six because I would have worried about, and this is OCD, but I would have worried about what if the train's late or what if my bike breaks down? You know, this morning I had a meeting at, she said, but get there at 8.30. The meeting starts at nine, but we're doing like, you know, it's a presentation, so you'd have to sort of sit through, we'd get, get to, I was there at quarter past eight. And I walked in, she was like, what are you doing here? I said, I'm sorry, I'm just here early. <laughs> but I would rather be three hours three hours early than 30 seconds late because it's just, you cannot ever get respect. You know, like you're saying, minimum you need respect of the people who are paying you. If you turn up late, you're just an idiot. Your staff have to look at you and go, you are a worthy leader. You're the person that I will follow into battle because not only will you be, be there on time, but you're professional enough to understand. You know, if you're good on top of being on time, wow. If you're a nice person as well as being good, as well as being on time, even bigger wow. Um, and that's all you've got to do. And I think, you know, having those kind of, I mean, yeah, there is a there is a kind of a slight mentality about the business. It's just one big old Roman orgy. And it used to be. And even when you go to the can, it still is. But I, don't, I mean, it's just it's such a pointless part of the industry. The industry is we are like we are employed by people to help them win. And fucking hell, God forbid, be professional, turn up on time and do the fucking job you're supposed to do, but do it 20 times better than they're expecting, and then, and then charge them 20 times more. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what I think the mentality of make money. If you're delivering a... If you're a plumber or you're a brain surgeon, well, the brain surgeon deserves more money because maybe he's better. Agreed. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw some quick-fire questions okay. at you uh, before we get into some of the very, very final questions. So, favourite film or documentary? Oh, wow. I love documentaries uh, and I like films. Um, God, favourite documentary. I don't know. don't know. Okay. I mean, I'll I, I, I literally, you know, I've just watched, uh, when I'm working, I always have something on in the corner. I'm, I'm not even watching it, but it's kind of there, like company, so that I can just, my, I'll put my headphones on and I'll just work, but I've just, I need to have some sound. Um just watched a very good series called Top of the Lake, China Girl, which is quite pretty gruesome, pretty dark, but it's good. But then, you know, I loved um, The Ozark. Really like that. There you go. There's a few recommendations. Yeah, Ozark's uh, very good. Book or learning resource? Learning resource, I mean, the internet is, is uh, pretty, good one. pretty <laughs> faultless and <laughs> faultful. I mean, it's I haven't like, discovered it's, that one yet, then check yeah, that one out. Um, Books. I'm not a massive reader. No. I have to say, when I go on holiday, I mean, I kind of, I'm a doer, and I can't. And reading just feels a little bit passive to me. I like to kind of make shit. Um, and I'm kind of saying about books. I'm actually trying to write a book at the minute, but I don't even know what it's about. I mean, it's you know, half it is this sort of stuff. You know, half it is the bullshit things that have happened in my career, and then maybe some theories about stuff, and then some cookery and interesting recipes. <laughs> um, but like I said, I don't, I'm not a massive reader. I don't like sort of business books or anything like that. I like to kind of watch programs or listen to people talking is sort of it feels a lot easier for me um a newsletter people should subscribe to 
well, obviously, um, Real Hackney Dave on uh, Instagram, I think, is invalid. Um, blimey. There's a... I don't know. God, you fucking... I don't know. Trying to bleed you dry of yeah. resource. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I just... I love... Again, it's a sort of... There's a, there's a kind of... I, I'm not very good at hunting out stuff, but I love to be told stuff. And so I'm always open to anything. That we whenever... should subscribe to my newsletter then. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, but you, know, you know what it is? It sort of gets back to that thing of reading. I, I, I mean, I don't yeah. know. It, um, I don't know if it's just something I'm not very good at. But listening to people, yeah. I've got a weird... Um, so who's I the favourite person you like to listen to? Uh, I know you're a fan of Dave Trott, aren't you? Dave Trott, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it was, Dave Trott was certainly somebody that, um, you know, when I started in the business, he was running, you know, without a doubt, the, the best agency. Uh, the the blokes that I was work, the bloke that I was working with, lived in a house with all the people that worked at GGT at the time, all Geordie, mental Geordies, and um, and I don't really, I'd, I've never met Dave. I mean, I've met Dave two or three occasions. I know he's, I've met his kids on two or three occasions. I used to, in fact, when I worked at. Um, at uh, WCRS, I was sharing an office, and I don't think she was very fond of me at the time. With Kathy Heng, Dave's wife, we we just ended up sitting on her sofa, and she lo- used to look at us in a very didn't like us. <laughs> we just didn't understand what we were doing sitting in her office, which I would have done. Um, but I, I have a lot of you know he's what I like about him is he's he's not afraid to say what he thinks. And, to no bullshit, and and I love that. Yeah. And um, I think the reason I struggle with a lot of business books is that business books are written by people who are trying to spout off about how smart they are, uh, but never really come to a conclusion or or a kind of uh, a, a, anything that is feels it sort of always feels retrospective. I remember when I worked at Channel Four, somebody came up and said, "Oh, you used to work at, Ch- at St Luke's," and I was like, "Yeah, yeah." She said, I "Read the book? Oh my god, just amazing! That book is a work of fiction." It shouldn't, you know, the book that was written about that in that agency was nothing like what the agency was about. It was written as a work of fiction, but people believe all that shit. And uh, what I like about that actually, at like planting little fictitious seeds that people like to believe. (laughs) Well, it's it's sadly it's really easy. Yeah, you know, I've I got twenty eight O levels, three A levels. No, I didn't. And get anything. (laughs) You you are fake news. I'm totally fake fake man. Yeah, and um, I just think. It's like there's a game that you can play. And, um, you know, I don't want my persona. I want my persona, which is at the moment, but with people who don't know me, is probably on Instagram. But I want them to know that's what I'm like. And I'll have an opinion about anything, but try and make it a bit piss-takey. All right, this is supposed to be quick fire, but I'll ask you this last one anyway. On that, why... Because you're so right, you you can make people believe stuff. So why go cocaine and this kind of stuff rather than I've got a, a because anybody an, a, that, MIT degree because anybody knows me knows I'm unbelievably boring yeah you know I don't do any of that stuff at work you know at CPB I'll be at home at you know if there was a Christmas party I'd be at home at 10 I'm just not that interesting but the thing I get a huge amount of interest uh, the thing that drives me is making stuff and you know I'll be at home at 10 but I'll be screen printing at 6 in the morning while everybody else is stumbling out of some horrible club with a load of Chang up their hooter. You know, just don't do it. And I I love all the things that a lot of other people don't. 
and I hate all the things that a lot of other people love. So, so for me, it's like I can just play that. You know, it's it's it probably sounds so stupid, and it's not done to make me to make people think that I'm cool <laughs> that, I don't, that I do cocaine. But it's like anybody that knows me will know I've never ever 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 done it, and I don't drink. So it's like I just take the it's just take the piss. Is kind of more fun. I'm going to try this. I'm going to create a little. See if people can. It's weird. The... One of the kids, my my um, son had a, a birthday party, and this girl came up, and she's provocative. She was like nine, and she went, "Dave, have you ever done PCP?" And I, <laughs> I just looked at her and I went, "Yeah," <laughs> and I know that she walked away from that and went, "Fuck, he's done PCP." If I'd gone any normal adult. Any self-respecting adult parent would have gone, oh, my God. How? They would have talked to their parents. How do you even... How do you even know about PCP? You're nine years old. Of course I've never done it. It's a disgusting drug. It's the kind of thing you should never, ever do. And because I looked at her and just went, yeah, and then said nothing else, I know she walked away from that thinking, I've done PCP. I've never done t- PCP. But it made her... It was, it's like that thing of, if I know I can kill you in a, in a meeting, then I feel all right. If you think that I've done PCP, that means you're weak. <laughs> or you think I'm stronger than you, and then oh, it's pathetic. Oh, you've t- t- completely no, dismantled it's me. Like it's going to be one of these things where I'm just going to have to go and have therapy now. You're the king of gullible people. It's great. Well, but in a way, in a way, that's what we do in advertising. Yeah. You know, it's like um, that's our job is to sit there and sell people. Yeah. And if you can sell them a vision that, you know, I, I remember we had, we had a meeting once with a client at B&Q. And she came in and she went, uh, She was. they were kind of trying to find out if we were nice people. And she said, Dave, I've heard these stories that somebody told me a story that you threw a billiard ball at somebody. I went, never done that. Never done that. And I went, who, who told you that? Probably the other agency have said, oh, Dave Bonagui, he's a fucking lunatic. He's got furniture made out of cocaine. He's a lunatic. Throws billiard balls at people. I've never done anything like that. But if you keep... If you if you kind of propagate that myth, or you tell them that you did something, they just make it up. I mean, it's like the world is full of idiots that you can just, or people that don't mind having a bit of a laugh. You know, when I went out and said the chairman of of Savills has given me all of his jazz mags or his favourite jazz mags, some people believed that. Now, some people would have read that and gone, "Oh, that's funny," but some people genuinely believe that. Why? I mean, does it? You know, what kind of world do we live in when you think that the chairman of a big property company is giving me his pornos? <laughs> it's mental. Uh, before I ask you the final question and reveal yeah. how people can get hold of you, uh, I'm going to pass the show over to our producer, Adam, who's going to share some actual insights from our interview today. Well, thanks for joining us, David, and thank you for your insight and honesty. Here's five actionable insights that I caught as you were talking. Number one. Challenge making beige vanilla work. It creates a much more interesting universe for creatives and clients. Number two, use any opportunity to get people talking. The medium doesn't matter. It could be a beer map. Keep going until you find an original angle. Number three, as a creative person, you're looking to solve problems. Data can help because what we do is like a science. Number four, be a challenger. The industry needs more of them. More entrepreneurs, more shit kickers who ask why things are done the way they are. Number five, life is short. Don't waste any time with your talent and energy. Being creative is a wonderful thing to have and you should use it. Find out what you want to use it for. If you can't do it for someone else, 
then do it for yourself. And number six, a bonus one, something we would certainly endorse, listening to people from different backgrounds, talking about what they do can help you become a smarter, more informed person. Thank you, Adam. Some really great insights there. So to sum up, before I ask you the final question, uh, where, pe- where can people get hold of you and do you have any asks for the audience? Um, good question. Uh, you can get hold of me um, on uh, Instagram, Real Hackney Dave. Just message me. Um, you can email me, davidbonaguidi at gmail.com. I'll give you my mobile number, but I have fucking hundreds of people every day calling me, telling me that about the accident that I had or the incident that I created. You'll get where too they're trying many to get dick I don't want it. Dick pic. I don't need any more dick pics. Um, what, was the, what was the second part of that? Um, any asks? It, get, getting in touch with me is really, really easy. Okay. I've got no filter. I don't know. I mean, as I, in, in, in Unlimited Inc., it's me and Arjun Singh. There are two of us. There are no PAs blocking. You, you, if you can get my number, give us a call and I'll answer it. Got it. What's the, what's the other one? Advice uh, for... No, no. Asks for the audience. Ask for the audience. My only ask is um, if you're in advertising or you're in, a crea- in, the, in the creative industry, and interestingly, I think that, you know, you are... We, we are sort of similar peas in the same pod. We have the same sort of frustration. We have the same thing that drives us. Um, and my thing would be don't waste any time. My ask would be do something with your energy and your and your talent. It, for me, being creative is a wonderful, wonderful... Um, I, I used to sort of call it a curse, but it's a wonderful thing to have. It's a wonderful thing. And you should use it and find out what it is you really want to use it for. I think that's one of the things that in advertising we sort of get into it and then go, oh, why is it not as interesting as I thought it would be? Well, it's because it's not a very interesting business and it's not creative. It genuinely is not a creative business. And my thing, my ask would be, please work out what it is you really enjoy and then work out a way of doing it as quickly as you can. And don't worry about what you think advertising should be. Advertising will always kind of, it will continue to exist, but I don't think it's a a very stimulating business for genuinely creative people. And if you are genuinely creative, please go out and do something that really inspires you and makes you feel great about the talent you've got. And make sure you use it as quickly as possible because life is very, very short. You know, you're, you, you had your little moment at 21 and you're 26 now. You know, wouldn't it be nice if you're still doing this when you're 65? Well, I'm 53, so I'm closer to 65 than you're ever going to be. And it's like, you know, I'm still, I've got the same energy and drive that you have, which makes me feel good because I sort of think, good. You know, I'm glad I haven't given up. You know, I've made some money, you know, but I'm by no stretch of the imagination uh, minted. You know, everything I've had to do has been hand fucking drawn. And that's a very, very painful way of doing it. But you know what? I wouldn't change anything. I'm perfectly happy the way I've, the choices I've made, perfectly happy. And um, I think the thing that drives me is just keeping it, tr- trying to keep interested. And if you can't keep interested working for somebody else, then do it yourself and make sure you're stimulating yourself. And make the most of the, you know, it is back making the most of the talent you've got, but also making the most of the time you've got. It's not very long. You know, if you've got kids, you haven't got kids. No. You know, when you have kids, man, it's like somebody walked past the old DVD player and hit fast forward. I mean, it just goes. And, um, you know, days just blend into years. And suddenly you find, fuck, you know, I'm 53. 
what have I done? What is it? I don't even know what I'm doing. And I think that's one of the things that's back to your confidence thing and your mental your mentality. I've you know I've been through exactly what you've been through, and I'm probably still going through it. But you have that constant thing of like, what the fuck am I doing? What am I doing and why am I doing it? And in London, it's very easy to get suckered into, well, I'm doing it, so I've got a good LinkedIn and I'm doing it for the followers or I'm doing it for the subs or I'm doing it for the money or I'm doing it for the car or the job or whatever. And that's not what you're doing it for. There's something in your brain that is there to make you happy. And your happiness is paramount. You know, if you're going out with somebody and you you don't like them for whatever reason, you stop. But we we often find ourselves doing things that we don't want to do, and then you know gradually that becomes something that we do as a career. We're not we're doing something we don't want to do a lot of the time, and then there is nothing more depressing or nothing more able to give you a depression than finding out that you've you've dedicated your life to something that you don't enjoy doing. So just to finish up, I'll ask you this last question. This is where we normally try and pull a little a little quotation mark from our guest. Mm. I thought that was, by the way, you know, it was just nice to let you roll there because there was so much advice in that last bit. But if to end on a positive note, if you were to give the world one piece of advice, a small nugget to live a better and more meaningful life, what would it be? Well, I'd have to steal it in the way that Savills and, um, and Isabel did, I would say. But obviously I'm just inspired by and reversioning a uh, famous line by uh, Gandhi which is I think you know be the change that you want to make or be the change that you want to see or whatever the fuck it was that he said but I like you know it's don't sit there and wait for it to happen just do it all right we'll end it there Dave thank you so much for being Pleasure. on the show it's thank been really you. great great to meet you yeah likewise good luck with everything thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast if you enjoyed this episode please don't forget to subscribe and share I'd also like to invite you to an ongoing project called the Move Me mailing list. If you enjoyed the show, I'm confident you'll enjoy this newsletter. It contains links to all the great content I've uncovered each month, along with insights of any interesting opportunities I've discovered. You can subscribe to this by visiting my website at rickyrichards.com. A special thanks to Frankie Byrne and James Utting. They're the tech heads that make this show possible. The intro music was composed by Dom Stores Fox. And thanks again to Reese Chapman for introing me to Lou and Lizette, the wonderful folks at Factory Studios in London, where this show is recorded. Finally, wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a great day and keep creating. Until next time, bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.